0: Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme,
1: how can Facebook tackle the challenges ahead? There's going to be a lot of political pushback going forward, which will be a distraction for the company. And which snowy country is becoming a crypto-nation?
2: On the surface, it just looks like any other Swiss cute village, but. Underneath the surface, it's now become the home of many, many crypto-related companies.
0: First, there are deep changes bubbling up in oil production. OPEC, the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which includes Saudi Arabia, is pressing ahead with an alliance with 11 non-OPEC countries, chief among them Russia. They are working on a draft agreement which could be signed by the end of the year. The oil cartel is trying to bring more countries into the club as a way of counteracting America's shale revolution, which could see America becoming the world's largest oil producer by next year. Henry Trix, our energy and commodities editor, has been to International Petroleum Week in London today to see what the industry makes of this sudden chumminess.
3: I went to the event today, which is a gathering of the great and the good of the oil industry. They come not in their hard hats and their overalls, but they come in suits and ties. It's a very male, grey-haired gathering, and it includes uh, ministers, energy ministers from different countries, OPEC and non-OPEC. Um, some of the chief executives of, uh, of top major oil companies, such as BP, Um, And the idea is really to take stock of the state of the oil markets. The question that I was really interested in um, exploring was how OPEC, which is in agreement with Russia about curtailing production in order to keep oil prices up, at least through June of this year is planning on unwinding that arrangement. And there's recently been talk about them extending this arrangement indefinitely. So I came to see how serious uh, that idea was.
4: We have seen in the year that, we, that the, the OPEC group and, and its allies of uh, the non-OPEC, this group of responsible producers... When they took action, we have seen a remarkable year in 2017. The president of OPEC,
3: Minister Almaz Rui of the UAE, has been one of the instigators of this idea to expand the OPEC-non-OPEC agreement into a sort of big tent that will last for the long term and will aim to stabilise prices. Thank you. My name is Henry Triggs uh, from The Economist. Um, I have a question for um, your Excellency Minister. Um, You mentioned uh, last week in in a series of interviews um, about the possibility of institutionalizing your arrangement um, with uh, Russia and other non-OPEC countries into a a sort of expanded OPEC plus that might last for a long time. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a bit and tell us how you think Russia would be a part of that, uh, that framework. And also, how you would overcome the risk that this might become so big and unwieldy with Russia, in addition to your other OPEC um, members,
4: that it actually might bring about the
3: end of OPEC. Thank you.
4: There is an aspiration, definitely, by uh, myself uh, as a president of the organization for this year, and also by the secretary general to try to put a framework uh, uh, around how are we going to continue working together and i think i think we are hopeful that uh, that this group uh, have built enormous trust among themselves and have over delivered
3: and he said that there is the draft of a charter being prepared which hasn't, it seems, been put to the non-OPEC countries but looks as though it will be the basis of a plan to try and expand this agreement into something more permanent. There
4: is, there is more potential. I think it will, if we can achieve it, it will strengthen DVD uh, group, uh, OPEC uh, is, uh, is is a group of producers and it's not usually different than any producer who wants to achieve the market, the market stability. We are not definitely a cartel, a secretive group. We are a group of responsible producers and we'd like to work with everyone to achieve the market stability for better economics growth for the whole world. And uh, I am uh, hopeful that we can uh, deliver and then put, put something that, that everyone accepts uh, to, to, to become the rule, uh, guidelines for us, how to work
3: the The idea of extending this agreement is all very well when prices are moderately high, at around 60 to $70 a barrel, and relatively stable. The difficulty comes either when prices get too high, which flushes out a whole lot of new production, such as uh, American shale um, and also deep water production, or even worse, when prices crumble as they did in 2014, which then causes everyone to uh, race to sell oil um, and always causes these kind of agreements to unravel amidst you know, cheating and acrimony. I spoke to Farid Mohammadi, who is the chief economist of the Rapidan Group, a consultancy based in Washington. Under
4: stress is when it will be the real test
0: for this agreement. And, And that has been the history of these sorts of agreements between different countries, whether inside OPEC or in the old days, even Norway would with OPEC
4: and, and Mexico
3: would work with OPEC. OPEC, particularly Saudi Arabia and non-OPEC, particularly Russia, have a delicate task at this point. It's a task that's quite similar to that of a central banker trying to unwind quantitative easing without spooking the markets. They have to unwind an agreement or find a way of transitioning from an agreement that's kept oil prices up to a future where oil markets could potentially be unstable. So their challenge is to find a kind of a bridging mechanism. And it seems like this talk of an OPEC plus alliance lasting indefinitely may be simply that. It may be talk that's aimed at reassuring the markets that, as someone put it today, daddy is back, that OPEC and non-OPEC can continue to manage things in spite of the fact that there is a whole uh, lot of production coming out of America that could push prices lower in the longer term.
0: Henry Trix reporting. Next, Facebook's timeline of events this year is looking far from rosy. First up is the indictment by Robert Mueller, the US special counsel, of 13 Russian individuals and three firms for meddling in America's presidential election in 2016. Facebook's unwitting complicity in allowing Russians to buy ads and manipulate users on its platform will cause it a few headaches and the year ahead will present even more challenges for the social media giant. Alexandra Suich-Bass is our US technology editor. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Helen. Let's talk about the indictment first. What does this show about Facebook's own blame or innocence in enabling Russians to buy
1: ads and target users? I think the indictment casts a few questions on whether Facebook has been honest about its own internal auditing and how much was really spent on the platform. American politicians were understandably very concerned about the reports last year that Russians had bought ads, but this indictment shows how sophisticated the Russian operation was, it had a very large budget of approaching over a million dollars a month. Facebook has claimed they've only found about $100,000 in Russian ad spending, but that was for ads that were purchased in rubles. So this indictment shows that actually the Russians were very sophisticated, paid through PayPal accounts with stolen identities. I think it actually suggests that there has been much more spent on Facebook than Facebook has zoned up to or that people are uh, suggesting has been. So I think there will be renewed calls for more transparency, another audit uh, from American politicians, which I think Facebook should do. Is
0: that the biggest challenge that's facing Facebook or are there other problems ahead of it?
1: So that is, I think, a major challenge that there's going to be a lot of political pushback going forward, which will be a distraction for the company. There are a couple other challenges. One, which is, I think, a major one is usage. So the Facebook platform is less relevant than it used to be. The core social network has seen usage declines already. Uh, part of this might have to do with the negative press Facebook has gotten, but it's not entirely so. In America, usage is down around 4% from a year ago Uh, and I think that poses tremendous challenges for Facebook because if people are spending less time on the network it means that fewer ads are going to be able to get served.
0: And what about costs? Are they still the same lean mean company that they were a few years
1: ago? Facebook is going to have to deal with a much more complicated interventionist regulatory regime in a variety of countries. And so their costs are going to go up. We're seeing a data protection, major data protection regulation come into force in Europe in May. Separate countries, including Germany, are imposing very hefty fines unless Facebook is able to monitor content and take down flag content in a very rapid way. And so what was At one, in recent memory, a fairly lean company that claimed not to be a media company, it claimed to be a tech company, is now increasingly looking like a media firm with lots of editors and monitors, and the costs are going to go significantly higher for Facebook to operate. Alexandra, thanks. Thanks, Helen.
0: If you've got any thoughts on Facebook or the oil cartel OPEC, then please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio. Or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, when you mention Switzerland, I think of snowy mountains, skiing, and chocolate. Banking, too, but not cryptocurrencies and blockchain. But a tiny Swiss town called Zug just south of Zurich has been nicknamed Crypto Valley. Sasha Nauter, our finance correspondent, is on the line. Sasha, how has Zug become the hub for the world's crypto businesses?
2: Hi, Helen. Well, Zook has indeed become an unlikely centre for, for crypto types. And as you say, you think of snowy mountains, well, they've got plenty of them. And on the surface, it just looks like any other Swiss cute village. But Underneath the surface, it's now become the home of many, many crypto-related companies. How it's become that is really a combination of factors. Firstly, it's got a an attractive settlement environment for any kind of company, really. It's got low taxes, fairly accommodating authorities, um, etc. So that makes it attractive for all sorts of corporations around the world. However, it, it decided a few years ago that it wanted to be specifically attractive to crypto-related Companies and that's in a time where a lot of jurisdictions around the world were actually quite afraid of crypto and sort of saw it as a as a threat or as something connected to criminals. Whereas the authorities in Zug actually thought, you know what, this may well be an opportunity. So I think the starting point is that they've been open-minded to it and fairly, um, let's say, facilitating to crypto entrepreneurs.
0: But have they done any specific things? I mean, that sounds like it's just a broadly speaking, a, you know, an attractive business environment.
2: I think half of the story is indeed that it's just generally an attractive business environment. But in terms of specifics, they've done things like they've become the first town in the world to accept Bitcoin for public services. Um, they've just uh, given their their uh, citizens a possibility of getting a blockchain-based um, identity. Now, those things, to be fair, I think are more marketing um, than anything else. But they do signal, again, um, that, they're, that they're open to these kind of technologies. More specifically for entrepreneurs, they'll do things like um, they'll, they'll let a company incorporate based on their crypto wealth, so whereas other jurisdictions would require a company to change crypto wealth into fiat you know into normal money which banks recognize before they allow you to incorporate in ZOOG they'll allow you to just use use crypto assets for that sort of thing so that's a bit technical but that sort of thing does matter and I think finally if I may the thing that most crypto entrepreneurs who've come to ZOOG mention is that they've come either because they're afraid of what's happening in other countries with regulations, with more of a crackdown against crypto, and I think Switzerland is much more welcoming. But secondly, they come because of the so-called network effect, you know, because the first companies uh, came to Zug, the second and the third and the fourth may as well come as well. And it sort of turns into a snowball.
0: It's strange, isn't it? Because blockchain and cryptocurrencies are, by their nature, decentralized. They're based on this ledger that is not stored anywhere centrally. So why do they still need a physical HQ?
2: That's a a very fair point, Helen. And in fact, we should have this conversation again in a few years' time. I think, in the long term, you know, the, the crypto purist, shall we say, the blockchain purist, will say that indeed, at its very heart, blockchain is, is decentralized, and therefore the whole idea of hubs is quite a contradiction. However, we're of course still very much in the in the forming stage of the the, the, the crypto sphere, and therefore most entrepreneurs will say at this stage it's helpful to be near each other to have, let's say, um, financial services and authorities that we can all use the same lawyers, the same accountants who've actually learned how to deal with these things. But in the long term, of course, it means that hubs will become unnecessary.
0: Sasha Nauta, thank you. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.